0: Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk magazine Broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people Who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community I'm Lavender
1: And I'm Kaylin filling in for H. Bosch who will join us later in the show Today on the Hudson Mohawk magazine we begin with Mark Dunley who will talk with Ron Dutchess about New York state budget. Then Willie Terry takes us to the Troy NAACP Branch Freedom Fund Breakfast to hear speeches on the free black community in Troy, New York before 1861. Later on, we dive into the archives for this week's Triple to E hear, to hear from a breast cancer survivor. After that, Bria Barthel goes to the Lansingburg Branch of the Troy Public Library to get some romantic Halloween book picks. Finally, we hear about an art event that the Sanctuary for Independent Media is holding. But first, here are the headlines.
0: The Times Union reports that seven former female inmates of the Albany and Rensselaer County jails have filed lawsuits Wednesday alleging they were victims of repeated sexual abuse at the hands of multiple former employees of each county's sheriff's offices. A
1: A city of Troy police detective filed a federal lawsuit against the gun manufacturer Sig Sauer Sauer, earlier this month, three years after he was wounded when a round from his department issued firearm struck him in the foot as he pulled up his pants. He is the second city police officer in the two years to sue Sig Sauer over claims of defective firearms.
0: The Albany Public Library says all seven of its branches will have new operating hours starting Monday, November 6th, due to staffing issues. Weekend hours will see the biggest changes.
1: The DMV is encouraging people to update its IDs to the real ID before May 7th, 2025 deadline. At this time, anyone... 18, and older who plans to fly domestically or enter certain federal buildings will need a real ID or a real ID-compliant document, such as an enhanced ID or a U.S. passport.
0: Assemblymember Pat Fay of Albany is introducing legislation to prohibit the use of drones lower than 400 feet around critical infrastructure, including schools, water treatment plants, and chemical manufacturing plants. The federal government leaves it to states to decide whether or not to regulate the use of drones below 400 feet high.
1: That's it for the headlines.
0: New York is looking at a multi-billion dollar deficit headed into the 2024 budget year, but so far Governor Hochul is resisting any tax hikes on the wealthy or even major relief from the state's so-called rainy day reserves. Mark Dunley talks with Ron Just of of New Yorkers for Fiscal Fairness to look at options that New York could take to handle the budget challenges.
2: We're talking with uh, Ron Deutsch, who directs New Yorkers for Fiscal Fairness, also is a consultant to a lot of labor, community, and faith groups around various economic uh, justice issues. And we asked Ron to give us an update on uh, next year's uh, state budget. This is the point where uh, Governor Hochul begins to put together a budget, was released a little bit in uh, mid-January. Uh, um, as often as the case, looking at a pretty significant uh, budget deficit, and as often the case, um, does not seem to want to raise any uh, additional tax revenues, tax to rich, and may not even want to dip into the so-called rainy day fund. So, so Ron, what are we looking at in next year's state budget?
3: Hey, Mark. Uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, well, we're looking at uh, some unfortunate numbers in next year's state budget. Um, the division of budget has been projecting a budget gap totaling about $36 billion over the next three years. So basically, we're looking at about a budget gap of $9.1 billion next year, $13.9 billion for the following year, and $13.4 billion for the years after that. Um, and the reason for that, according to the Division of Budget, has been decreasing tax revenue uh, and decreasing federal aid. As you know, during the COVID years, we got a substantial amount of federal assistance uh, to help us deal with the, the pandemic and its aftermath. Um, a lot of that money is drying up, so... Um, you know, our budget gaps are tending to increase now. So we need to figure out a way to close those budget gaps. Some of the good news is, as you were pointing out, you know, the state has put about $19.5 billion into this rainy day reserve fund. Um, so that is without a doubt, probably the most robust robust cash, cash reserves that uh, the state has ever had. So that would really help us You know whether these storms uh, that we see coming, because remember the budget gap is basically the difference between revenue collection and spending. Um, So you know, spending is predicted to be higher than it's been in past years, and revenue seems to be down a bit. Although the good news is that the revenue projections, actually according to the comptroller's office, are coming in a bit higher uh, than the division of budget had projected. Um, It's still below 2022 levels, but um, it's not quite as bad as we would have thought. And it looks like if things continue in this fashion, the budget gap for next year would probably shrink to somewhere around $5 billion.
2: Now... That, that budget gap is, is based, my understanding, on sort of the existing spending pattern and commitments. And those New Yorkers who might say, we need more funding for affordable housing or uh, cleaning up various environmental problems, dealing with, with climate change, hunger, uh, th- that probably they want some additional funding beyond uh, what is the present spending projection? Yeah, there's no question.
3: I mean, there's dramatic needs that still exist in New York that we're trying to address uh, and that desperately need to be addressed. Uh, at least of certainly one of the, the most pressing issues that we have right now is the number of migrants coming to New York City and New York State. Um, you know, we need to work on trying to provide services to these folks who are in desperate need. Uh, And that's, uh, you know, potentially going to cost billions of dollars. And you couple that with Governor Hochul's, um, you know, desire to create more affordable housing, which is not cheap and needs to be done. Uh, And, you know, we have a lot of spending uh, needs, um, but not a lot of revenue to meet those needs. So a lot of us talk about the need for increasing revenue at the state level, uh, through a variety of different mechanisms that would ask the wealthiest New Yorkers to pay their fair share.
2: Well, maybe we could explore some of those. I will mention on climate, you know, there's a whole separate, you know, movement around climate that we've covered, such as the uh, Climate Superfund Act and the governor seems to be moving into some type of, uh, you know, carbon pricing. Um, but in terms of the other revenue issues, you know, wh- what are some of the ways we could make the New York State revenue? Uh, tax revenue system a little bit fairer? Well,
3: we've been working on doing that over the last, say, decade or so. Um, We've had some success, certainly, with the income tax and reconfiguring the income tax rates. So we ask folks making over a million dollars, $5 million, and $25 million a year. Now, that's, that's income that they're receiving. This is not net worth we're talking about. Um, So, you know, we've raised those brackets uh, or raised the rates on those brackets uh, over the last few years, uh, but those are set to expire in 2027. Um, So I think at a minimum, one of the things we need to do is really extend that um, for at least another five years. Uh, as we see these projected budget gaps uh, looming. And some of those gaps, as you get into those out years past 2027, are the result of, um, you know, that that millionaires tax basically going away. Uh, you know, bef- when we, we had um, post 9-11, um, we actually needed a substantial amount of revenue as well. Uh, and that was when uh, people like, uh, Speaker Sheldon Silver and Majority Senate Majority Leader Joe Bruno actually came together and increased personal income tax rates over the objection and veto over uh, of Governor Pataki, but there was a $500,000 tax bracket back then, um, which seemed to make sense as well. So I think we really do need to reevaluate our personal income tax structure um, to ensure that those at the top you know, with the most means are, in fact, paying the most. Now, many people will say that all this does is drive millionaires out of New York. And we've heard a lot about migration patterns uh, over the last few years. But the reality is we have more millionaires than we've ever had uh, in New York state. And the the people who are leaving are those who are lower income and middle income who are really in search of more affordable housing options, uh, and they're moving to the suburbs of New Jersey and Connecticut. Um, I mean, everybody wants to make a big deal out of the fact that people are moving to Florida, um, which is true. But if you look at the numbers, more people are moving to, you know, New Jersey, Connecticut, and California. When you add those three together, than are moving to Florida. Um, So this notion that somehow people are just fleeing to lower tax states is erroneous um, and just kind of feeding into, um, you know, the myth of the moving
2: millionaire. Now, I I, I know the years, uh, you know, some people like yourself uh, have said, well, one solution might be to, you know, we have a sales tax on a lot of stuff, but the old time stock transfer tax was just a sales, very, very small sales tax. On, on on stocks. Um, we stopped collecting that uh, decades ago, and that can, depending upon how Wall Street's doing, can be, you know, I guess, 10, 15 billion dollars a year. Um, is that still a pipe dream that they're going to start uh, making Wall Street uh, kick in a little bit more?
3: Well, I don't think it's a pipe dream, but I, I think it's a, a heavy lift, and, you know, People like myself have been advocating for that for years. Uh, Local assembly member Phil Steck has really been a champion uh, of this. Um, And it's really long past time that we do this. I mean, think about the fact that this tax was in place between, say, 1910 and 1980. Uh, So for 70 years, we were collecting this and using those uh, funds to, you know, uh, help provide uh, adequate spending levels for dramatic needs in New York State, and, and now you know since 1980 we're basically just rebating it back to uh, stockbrokers, uh, and it makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, it's certainly a tax that we should be collecting. I mean, the the wealthy who are primarily the people that are purchasing stocks. Um, you know, they have the means and the wherewithal to pay a small tax on the conveyance and transfer of stocks. So well, well Ron, we're out of time. Any 10 second closing points you want to make? Uh, I think that we need to make sure that we ask the wealthy to pay their fair share and we, we need to make sure that we're not cutting spending at a time when people desperately need services.
2: Ron Deutsch on New Yorkers for Fiscal Fairness, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine.
4: Okay, that was uh, Mark Dunley. Um, we'll keep um, you updated on the status of New York State budget, so keep listening or go on to our website at mediasanctuary.org.
0: Thanks, Bosch, and you made it. Yes, right. I
4: did. A little technical difficulties, but um, I have great engineers. <laughs> Kaylin, and thanks to you, Lavender.
0: All right. On Saturday, October 7th, 2023, Hudson Mohawk Magazine roaming Roman labor correspondent Willie Terry attended the Troy NAACP Branch Freedom Fund Breakfast at the Italian Community Center in Troy. The guest speaker at the breakfast was Dr. Jennifer Burns, Ph.D. and professor of at SUNY Albany, Willie recorded her speech on the free black community in Troy before 1861.
5: Before the 15th Amendment was ratified in the Constitution. To know that some of the first minds to discuss birthright citizenship and equal voting were here, they were here. These men continued to hold and organize state conventions for black suffrage and for community uplift. They then also participated in the National Colored Convention Movement. And the National Colored Colored Convention (coughs) Movement was that free African Americans would meet in different states with each other to discuss the state of black America and then bring that information home to their local communities and then be able to duplicate different efforts in a unified effect. And this was twofold, one for black civil rights in the free states, but also for the abolition of slavery. Men from Troy went to these conventions. They also then in 1847 held the Black National Convention. That means they brought to Troy some of the leading black abolitionists This is where you get your Frederick Douglass walking the streets. This is where you get Charles B. Ray walking the streets. Stephen Myers, which we're familiar with in Albany, coming across the river. James W. C. Pennington, who had escaped slavery and was living in Connecticut. He became one of their boys. He penned a letter in 1840, and they supported this letter, which he took with him to the Anti slavery society meeting in London, England. The black children supported him as their black representative for black civil rights in America and for the abolition of slavery. At the time in 1847, he was on mission in Jamaica. He <coughs> made his trip from Jamaica to here. <coughs> Samuel Ringgold Ward is a new a uh, biography out about him, everybody should read it. He was the cousin of Henry Highland Garnett. He came here. He had been active out in other parts of New York State preaching to white churches, which was very rare. Right? And Phoebe Van Rensselaer and her husband, Alexander Toohey, Tui- had left Troy, and they been back to the Nassau Bahamas, but in 1847, they came back here. They used all of this meeting space and this time to coordinate a black civil rights effort on a global scale. And so I think sometimes we think about black history, and I did this as a kid, and I thought, okay, small, local, where were all the black people? But then I saw the black people here not only acted local, but they thought global. They made those connections and they protected them. The other thing that they did. Of course, through their schoolhouse and through their social organizations with the Yates Juvenile Anti-Slavery Society meant that a young Peter Baltimore would travel with Henry Highland Garnett to New York City to attend the larger American Anti-Slavery Society meetings. And that was the integrated, and I dare say it, one of the first or precursors of the NAACP. An interracial cooperative network looking for the best life experiences for African Americans, enslaved and free, and advocated for them politically. Peter Baltimore as a child will go with Henry Highland Garnett and this will shape his life. And I bring this up because as much as education is so important and black Trojans stressed it and put a lot of effort into it, the education was not just in their books, it was in their civic engagement. That shaped Peter Baltimore's life, and his friendship with Garnett Douglas, or with, um, I'm sorry, with Frederick Douglas and Henry Highland Garnett will ultimately be why he names his son Garnett Douglas Baltimore.
0: Yeah.
5: Yeah. One of the other things that these black Trojans did that really shaped my life as I was learning about it and empowered me to continue to want to tell this story is that they didn't just do these things on paper. They were mobile and they were moving and they were traveling and they were connecting and they were also operating an underground railroad here. And that underground railroad was bringing enslaved people through Troy and to Canada. But there was also what I've coined in my work an above ground railroad. Mm -hmm. Mm
6: -hmm.
5: And the above ground railroad was using newspapers to create a black space of communication and to make Troy one of those spaces where free black men who are abolitionists and also civil rights workers were coming to and through Troy. It made Troy a nexus point in the black abolitionist movement and the black civil rights movement before the Civil War. This is also the precursor of the Great Migration. We've talked about this a little earlier. The first great migration of black folk into Troy happens before the Civil War. It's how you get Alexander Thuy and others. The second, of course, comes after, really around 1900. These pre-Civil War African-Americans in Troy, in not just putting things in writing, not just setting up those physical buildings that people could see, black spaces, they also volunteered their bodies to fight against slavery, and two examples. First. Is during the Civil War when New York State prohibited black men from fighting, free black men. Actually, the nation prohibited free black men from fighting in the Civil War when it began. So white men could enlist, they could volunteer, but the free black man could not. Men in Troy held meetings, as did men in other states, to push for their states to allow those black men to fight. <coughs> black men got the right to fight the same time as slaves did with the Emancipation Proclamation. It says something about race relations, that your race, your skin color, usurped your legal status in America at that time. One of the men who had used the Underground Railroad to make it to Troy was a man named Robert Kelly. Here he is. Robert Kelly had escaped slavery in Virginia. He had gone to Hoosick and then he settled in Troy. When time came for enlistment, he joined with other sons of these black Trojan abolitionist leaders, and they went off in the 20th U.S. Colored Regiment. Mm. After the Civil War, Robert Kelly came and moved to Troy. He chose it. The other man who came back to Troy alive was a man named Garrett Jefferson. His father was a man named Thomas Jefferson, not the third president of the United States. Um, but. He was the man who helped to relocate John Brown to North Elba and to Timbuktu. He lived in Troy. Garrett went to the Civil War. He came home. He had his arm amputated from the injury, but he and Robert Kelly, they began to organize new civil rights and community elevation organizations and associations. One was a testament to black veterans, the Grand Army of the Republic, and the Masons. They were here. The other thing that these men did was advocate with black fathers in Troy who were fighting for their daughters to integrate Troy High School. During the Civil War, while the black men were away, one of the first black girls was admitted to Troy High School. Her name was Ada Bozeman. After that, the school prohibited the integration or the continuation of black children from attending. Alfred Williams, his daughter Jane, and others sued the Troy School District, and I'd like to say that they won, but they didn't. In 1872, the district was forced to fully integrate by the state legislature, so it was a statewide requirement for that to happen. These experiences, I think are so important for Troy High School grads in particular to know. And I think they're important for our youth to understand because it means that people before them were organizing, connecting, advocating, and they had a vision of the future that they were designing and demanding in this city. And they had parents and grandparents who are demonstrating and providing a blueprint for how to get there. Church, school, community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. As some of you may know Robert C. Kelly, um, his son is George Biddle Kelly. Mm-hmm. You know, George mm-hmm. Biddle. He grew up in Troy. He first attended RPI and it didn't fit for him, so he went to Cornell Uni- University while in cornell he helped found the first black greek letter fraternity the alpha phi alpha fraternity probably
7: with fifth avenue ladies i am sure
5: yes he is i'm coming to that
4: that or uh, this is part three of a four-part series to hear the rest of this series go to our website mediasanctuary.org
0: Sorry, was muted. For those just turning in, I'm Lavender.
4: (laughs) Hey, Lavender, how are (laughs) you? And I'm H. Bosch Jr. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on W-O-O-C-L-P-105.3 FM Troy, W-O-O-G-L-P-92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P-98.9 FM Schenectady, and W-O-O-A-L-P-106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at MediaSanctuary.com org this program comes from the sanctuary for independent media in troy new york okay so our third segment in the spirit of um acknowledging uh breast cancer survivors um and not victims which i'm glad to say so we hear from triple e segment from the archives this is coming from the archives with marcia chandler Marsha is an advanced evangelist founder of the United Sisters Women Ministers since 1998, counselor and mentor to women in recovery. She also worked for New York State Legislature for over 20 years. It is also breast cancer. This was a segment came out of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and we're doing a, a rerun. Okay, let's take it away.
7: Hello again, everyone. This is H. Bosch, Jr. of the Triple E's segment, Education, Empowerment, Entrepreneurship. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. In the spirit of bringing acknowledgement and awareness to breast cancers a month, today's guest on the show, Triple E's Education, Empowerment, Entrepreneurship, is Sister Marsha Chandler. Sister Chandler is both a, is a breast cancer survivor now let me tell you a little bit about Sister Marcia. Sister Marcia is evangelist and founder uh, and CEO of United Sisters and Women's Ministry since 1998 and a proud grandmother. Yes. So thank you so much Sister Marcia for taking time. Thank you for having uh, this, me. <laughs> yeah, busy schedule. We appreciate it. So um Once again, I'm so glad to say breast cancer survivor instead of victim, and we want to talk a little bit about that in your journey. Okay. Okay? When were you diagnosed? I was actually
8: diagnosed in uh, 2017. Yeah, 2017. I had gone to the uh, doctor for, you know, for my regular mammogram, and I stayed on top of that, but when I went in 2017, uh, he said, well, wow, we see something. i like, yeah, okay. But it didn't really bother me because I didn't feel like I was predisposed to it because my mother didn't have it, my grandmother, none of the women in my family uh, had it. So okay. I, I really was just scared, you know.
5: <laughs>
7: mm-hmm. So, what was your initial response when you were diagnosed, and they said, "Hey, we found something, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, we believe you have breast cancer"?
8: Well, initially, of course, it takes you, it kind of takes you, you know, a a, bath a little face. bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, I, I said, well, hmm. I don't know if I really believed it, but uh, I did. Um, thank God, I did go back. You know, and they, and they had to do a biopsy, and they did, you know, they did find
7: something. Mm-hmm. You know? After the biopsy, and they said, well, now, you know, that wait-and-see period to see whether or mm-hmm. not, you know, it's benign, you know, mm-hmm. uh, were you scared? Were your emotions all over the place? You know, speak to that a little bit. Okay.
8: I um, I don't know if I was really scared, but I was a little bit concerned because, ironically, during that time... There was a couple of other women in my church that had it, uh, uh, had been diagnosed. One passed away, uh, Gloria Turnage, and then my cousin, uh, t- uh, which one was Teresa, uh, Harris, she had it. So it was just, you know, it made me a little bit concerned. I'm like, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I told the doctor, he told me that I would, more than likely have to do either chemotherapy or radiation.
7: How did your family respond, your kids, your family? You
8: know, you well, know. you know, I'm going to tell you, at first, I really kind of held back and didn't really say anything. I guess I wanted to have something really concrete, and it was already concrete. But I have sons. I have five sons. Right. And... um I just kind of took my time telling them like one by one. And of course, with boys, they, they just got kind of quiet. You know, they didn't know. Uh, I think because my, my kids think that, oh, mom, she, she's all right. She doesn't need anything, that kind of thing. And for me to tell them that I had received a diagnosis of breast cancer, that was like, just really blew them away. And they wouldn't even talk to me about it.
7: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. But so then, uh, yeah, yeah. You, once you were diagnosed, what type of treat? What stage did they catch it in? One and two. Oh. What treatment did you seek? Was it you know aggressive or yes? Yeah, speak. You know. Share mm-hmm. that. Was.
8: Okay. I when they when they caught it, it was almost I think almost two points or whatever it is stage two. And um he said that, the doctor said that I would either have to do chemo and or radiation. But I, honestly, I just really began to pray. And I said, and, and I had a couple of prayer warriors. And I said, I don't, I just pray that all I have to do is the radiation. So in the meantime, they had to send my uh my specimen out to california and they do a really intense intense uh look at at the um at the tissue rather mm-hmm. and it took about mm, i don't know it took about 10 days i think for it to come back now during that time i began to get a little antsy a little nervous about that but thank god when it finally came back i think i was like one or two points from having to do chemotherapy and i wound up doing the radiation 33 rounds of radiation which was such a blessing yeah that
7: was a blessing i'm telling you so um a couple more questions before we close out
0: okay did you have any side
7: effects to
0: the radiation. No, not really. What? You know, you
8: get a little tired with the with the radiation, but right. the radiation it took longer to get undressed than to do it to to actually do the actual radiation. Okay. You know, yeah. To that, I think the radi- each treatment was maybe ten, fifteen minutes, something like and that. I, and and
7: and how many times a week or or? or
8: even? I went every. I went every day. I got thirty three rounds, so I went just about a month.
7: Wow, that is mm-hmm. well. I want to ask you this, and uh, this question leads into. Um, I am so glad I can say you are a proud survivor and not yeah. victim. So my yes. next question is: um, How did your lifestyle change?
8: Well, actually, you know, it didn't because I um, I kept going to work and I still kept going to church and uh, I just kept doing what I was doing because i um i didn't i wasn't feeling any kind of bad way mhm that so yeah i I kind of just kept doing what I was doing how mm-hmm.
7: can people sister marsha, get involved with your organization tell us how they can reach you because you know you have this wonderful organization that's been around since 1998. Talk to me a little bit about it. Tell people how they can get involved with the organization. Mm-hmm. Cause you are such a powerful woman of God. And I so thank you for coming on and sharing your inspirational mm-hmm. story with us. So mm-hmm. how do they get involved if they oh, want to I get involved? I appreciate
8: whole... you having me. I right now I'm, um, getting right re- cause I've been kind of like on a download for a little bit cause I had mm-hmm. other issues, health issues, but I'm getting ready now to start with the United Sisters Women's Ministries again. Again, I'm, I was on the radio for on WHAZ for a few years with um, called Life in the Word, and okay. I was on there every every week, and now. I'm getting ready to start a support group down here in, in where I live. I actually live in South Royal Towers, which is senior housing. Okay. And I'm looking to start next week, the 24th, a support group begin to bring the women back together oh, that's great. again because I worked with women that were in recovery, women that were, had HIV and AIDS and every year, Christmas time, I was for about seven years, I was doing a, um, it was a holiday event, holiday Day outreach where I talked to the women, invited women from the women's shelter to uh, to the church and I would do brunch and give them all gifts and all that kind of So I'm getting ready, you know, there's, I'm going to have people like just be on the lookout Great. for United Sisters Christian Women's uh-huh. Ministries. So okay. we should be on, up and out and getting ready to do again, because I find that women are a lot of times they don't really get the support. And especially like women coming home from prison, they have babies to come to deal with, where right. men, they come home and they can go and just live with somebody. But a lot I, I, of the women, I, I, I you know so, what I, I mean?
7: <laughs> right. I so much agree with you that yeah. there's so many programs yeah. for men and not many for women. But uh, exactly. we're going to have to close out. And uh, what I want to say, well, first of all, I want to say a shout out to your sister Tony, who we went to high school together. Okay, right? okay. So I got to say hi to Tony and make sure <laughs> yeah. she listens. Yeah. And um, thank you. God bless you. May oh, heaven continue to smile upon you and everything you do. You are thank a you. true agent of change and a blessing to so many. Wow. All right. Thank you so much. Remember this. Dance like there's no one watching. Sing like there's mm. no one listening. Love like you've never been hurt. And you better live like it's heaven on earth. Until next wow. time. Don't hear about making a difference. You need to be about making a difference. This mm-hmm. is Miss Inez Bosch's baby boy in your overcoming <laughs> adversity specialist, H. Bosch Jr., doing oh. what I'm made to believe. God bless you, Sister Marcia. God bless you.
0: Oh, classic. That was an old Triple E's segment with Marcia Chandler, breast cancer survivor and founder of United Sisters Women's Ministries.
4: Wow, what a classic and what a blessed woman of God, and a truly, truly successful human being. Next, we hear about somewhat new genre of witchy romance novels and short reflections on how romance novels may provide new approaches to examining family and women's power and roles in society.
9: This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm back once again with Lori Dreyer, the branch manager of Troy Public Library's Lansingburg branch. Lori, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hey, Brianna, Thank you. It's nice to be here. Great to have you here. And it sounds like
10: you've got a few different
9: October-themed books to share with us today.
10: Indeed, I do. And this is kind of a trend that we are seeing in books right now. I have picked out several witchy romance books to talk to you about. And I see your face, and it is quizzical, yes. I don't understand it, but I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, A lot of these books tell great stories. So it's, let me guess, single women falling in love with scarecrows and ghosts? Well, let's get into the list, and we'll find out what they're about. The first one that I want to recommend is called *The X Hex* by Erin Sterling. But you might know this author better by a different name, Rachel Hawkins, who writes several series under her pen name Erin Sterling. Uh, Rachel Hawkins is known for writing *The Wife Upstairs*. It was a surprise hit of 2021, and we couldn't keep it on the shelves. I'm hoping that. Some listeners like me have not heard of this because I'm feeling a little out of the loop. I think maybe as librarians, we see a lot of books that just get real popular and other folks never hear about them. So that might be what this is. Anyway, Sterling slash Hawkins has written The X hex uh, and it centers around Vivian Jones, a witch who's had a bad breakup. So it happened a few years ago and she did a tiny little spell to curse her ex. She didn't think it was going to go anywhere. And then uh, suddenly, you know, he returns to town and is shortly after attacked by wind-up toys. And it's at that point that Vivian realizes maybe her spell worked. So she has to figure out how to fix it. And of course, you know, figure out what this is. She has to work with her ex because they have a great deal of chemistry. And so uh, hilarity ensues. Are we talking like little itty bitty wind-up toys or
9: giant size? I'm just imagining being sort of like a Gulliver's Travel thing of being surrounded
10: by teensy-tinesy wind-ups. Yes, yes. I believe these are regular-sized toys. and, uh, And other things happen to him, too, when he comes back to town. So it's pretty clear uh that the hex that she put on him stuck
9: okay so if you like getting revenge at exes wind-up toys or enjoying a would you call it a mystery oh romance this is the book for you i guess
10: Okay, second. (laughs) Moving on, we're talking about Payback's a Witch by Lana Harper. This one sounds like a lot of fun. One of the best things about these books is their punny titles. We'll hear a couple other ones that have really great titles. But this one is by Lana Harper called Payback's a Witch. Uh, And it talks about Emmy. It's the story of Emmy. She's an okay witch, but she hasn't been home in a, a long time. And that affects her ability to do magic. So that is until, of course, she gets a phone call from her parents and they guilt her into coming home for a bit. So during that time, she learns that her ex, whose name cracks me up, his name is Gareth Blackmore. Like, what a witchy name, right? And so she finds out that Gareth has been dating and breaking the hearts of not one, but two of her friends. So now she has to decide, is she in with them for revenge. This is another revenge tale. So they want to get together and they want to do a little spell casting on Gareth and she has to decide if she's in or she's going to sit this one out. Okay I hope your selection of these two doesn't have anything to do with your own
9: romantic life at all.
10: (laughs) Fortunately it does not. Uh, Okay, so my third one, it does, it does change a bit. So the third one that I want to recommend is called The Witches of Moonshine Manor, which this one, I mean, I know I said that about the last two, but this one sounds really great. This is a humorous story about some truly magical octogenarians. So I immediately think of Richard Osman. You know, in the Thursday Murder Club with the octogenarians who solve mysteries. But these are octogenarians. It's not really a romance novel. This book is described as a magical heist novel. Which, how can you get better than that? How can you steal magic? Right? What is, are they stealing the magic? Are they using the magic to steal things? What is happening? So, uh, and along the way, so they're doing all of this to save their home. And along the way to saving their home, they find... You know both family and found family it's a book about found family it's a really sweet tale Uh, one of the characters though includes a radical young witch who is hell-bent on taking down the patriarchy and so the octogenarian witches are gonna help her as much as they can while saving their home so that's a really fun one okay next (laughs) okay I can tell I haven't sold you on this yet Bria (laughs) All right. So the next one is The Very Secret Society of Irregular Witches by Sangu Mandana. And I'm sure I'm saying that incorrectly. Speaking of found family, this is another book about found family. So I wanted to mention this sweet book about a witch who's in hiding and cannot reveal herself. She lives in Great Britain, uh, and she, through several online sources, receives a request to teach some young witches magic in secret. So this one's a classic British romance with a bit of witchy glam and it's got some great librarian jokes. The the main love interest is a librarian, so you know I'm I'm all in for books with librarian characters.
9: Okay. Will we enjoy it if we're not librarians, those few of our listeners that are not librarians? Only if they're witches. No, I'm just kidding.
10: <laughs> <laughs> okay, glad to have that clarification. Next. I think these are books for everyone. This one is called Mr. and Mrs. Witch by Gwenda Bond. And this one has such a great premise. So what happens when witch and witch hunter discover each other's secret identities while they are standing at the altar together? All right. So if it's true love, they're going to team up and figure it out, right? You're going to have to read the book. Uh, But Bond is known for her authorship of the first Stranger Things novel, Suspicious Minds, and a bunch of other stuff. And she is said to be currently writing a magical art heist
0: book.
9: Who knew that magical heists would become a literary genre?
10: I had no idea that witchy romance was going to become a literary genre. And now we're taking it even further. I mean, it's just fantastic. I love this. I love how creative these authors get with these stories. They talk about... You know, women and uh, women in history and power and how it's wielded. I mean, these are just fantastic stories, even though you might chalk them up to being fluffy romances, they're really wonderful. Okay, and do you have another fluffy one for us? I do, yes. So this one is called A Letter to Three Witches. It's by Elizabeth Bass. And this title actually comes recommended by a Troy Public Library librarian. One of my coworkers recommended this one. So when romance problems cause uh, their powers to go berserk, a trio of witches whose family was banned from practicing magic risk getting in serious trouble with the Grand Council. They need to find out what is going on with their magic and soon. They may be able to repair their love lives, we hope, but can they avoid being reprimanded by the council? Okay, and I see you have one more, I think. We won't have time to
9: discuss it, but maybe you can do like just a quick title and author.
10: Sure, yeah. Uh, we have Witch, Please by Anne Aguirre, and that's another one of those punny titles. And then we also have Which You Gonna Do by Avery Flynn. Both great reads. Okay, and that was Lori Dreyer, branch manager of the
9: Troy Lansingburg branch, and the Lansingburg branch is located at...
10: 27 114th street in troy and usually i tell people it's down the road from snowman ice cream but they're unfortunately closed for the season but you can come and visit us just a quick question you help check out books do you get many men reading romances do you think we do we do get i think more men than people would think the genres kind of change we have a lot of westerns and western romances that are probably a little more popular with male readers Honestly, in the last few years, I've seen everybody checking out romances. They're just a lot of fun.
9: And again, that was introduction to the genre of witch romances and the subgenre of witch heist books. Thank
10: you, Lori. No problem. I'm glad to be here, Bria.
9: And that's Bria Barthel
0: for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Happy Halloween. Again, that was Bria's latest interview with Lori Dreyer, manager of the Lansingburg branch of Troy Public Library. A full list of titles and authors can be found in the segment description on our website.
4: Okay, uh, this Sunday, the sanctuary will hold a reception to welcome. All right, guys, you had to give me the tongue twister. All right, Lepango, the volcano that left the scripture by Beatrice uh Cortez visitors can join us at the sanctuary for this free event and share conversation food and community appreciation together we will go to the lock one to visit the sculpture which traveled up the Hudson River to Troy on board the John J Harvey fireboat
6: take it away so
11: in the studio with me today is Beatrice Cortez and I'd love for you to introduce yourself please
6: Yes, I am so grateful to be here at the Sanctuary for Independent Media after walking the Echo Art Trail and has been an amazing experience. Um, My name is Beatriz Cortez. I am an artist originally from El Salvador and I am based in Los Angeles and in Davis, California.
11: So there's a reason that we took you on the Eco Art Trail, because your work is going to be part of the Sanctuary Eco Art Trail with your sculpture that is coming up from Storm King. What should listeners know about the work that is currently on installation at Storm King and why it's coming up to North Troy?
6: Yeah, for those of you who have never visited uh, Storm King, as myself being from El Salvador, I had never been there before. And uh, you know, I'm based in the west coast, so I had not had the opportunity. If you haven't had the opportunity, it's a beautiful sculpture park. There's a free day at the beginning of the month, usually, and so it's beautiful to uh, visit because it's got lots of roads and trails and um, different sculptures installed permanently in different areas of the park. And they have close to the museum uh, an installation that's at It's more like a temporary exhibition that rotates every year, twice a year. And so my work is installed there as um, an exhibition about the Ilopango, the volcano that left. Ilopango was a volcano in El Salvador that um, erupted in what is estimated as the year 536. And that uh, volcanic eruption then darkened the sun. The ashes of this volcano called Tierra Blanca Joven darkened the sun for about 18 months and um, created the first epidemic that, um, you know, we could consider um, comparable to the first and the pandemic because to the pandemic that we experienced just recently because lots of people died around the world, um, especially because there was no sun in some of the summer months. It was winter all year round and the crops died, the people you know experienced fam- famine, etc. So the hunger, they were thirsty, they, they were cold, they didn't have heat, etc. And so um, the volcano impacted humans in a way, be- but it also cooled the planet. And um, the ashes of this volcano landed all over the planet because they took so long that they were mixed in the atmosphere to took uh, different currents, etc. And some landed in the Arctic, some landed in Antarctica, in different parts of the world, and they have been found in the ice core samples. So all this inspired by making this sculpture called Ilopango, the volcano that left. And that sculpture was, for me, really important in um, imagining migration, migration of land, migration of matter, migration of particles, migration of atmospheres, But also the migration of peoples, and to imagine the migration of peoples as one, where um, you know wherever people go, especially people coming from the southern part of Mexico and the and the Central American region, which is where most of the immigrants coming from the southern border are coming from, um, that they're standing on their own land, that the particles of the underworld that's so sacred to them have. Being, um, you know, sent by this volcanic eruption to welcome them as part of the land that they're stepping on today.
11: So the particles migrated. Your sculpture is migrating, and people also migrate because of the conditions from the environment and many other things. Your sculpture is uh, a performance. You're looking to kind of reimagine the sculpture as something that's moving and changing um, why uh, why the Hudson River and how um, what do you what do you hope that people are getting by seeing your sculpture traverse up the Hudson River
6: well the Hudson River is an important estuary that has a mixture of salt water and fresh water um, it has tides that are generated by the pull of the of the gravity, but also in especially the pull of the gravity of the moon and the pull of the gravity of the sun, especially when they are aligned like in new moon or full moon. And um, it has tides that fluctuate every six hours or so, and so because of that, the Lenape called this river, the river that flows both ways. There's part of the time um, that the river flows north and part of the time the river flows south which is something that um, not all rivers do in the world, although there are others that do that. And so the, the sculpture, my sculpture has been traveling um, in a very poetic um, representation of its own, tra- of the travels of this volcano. The sculpture was made in at first in Atelier Calder in France, and then it traveled over a boat inside a shipping container across the Atlantic. It came to the United States. It traveled by, by truck. It went to my studio in Los Angeles. We worked on it. Then we, it traveled to Storm King, where we finished it. And now that the, that it's um, true to its name, it's going to be the volcano that left before the show ends at Storm King. It's going to be assembled on top of a boat, and it's going to travel for three days over the Hudson River at the MPAC, at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, there's a website where you can follow the map and the times and be able to, you'll be able to watch it go by in front of here. It's going to happen on the 29th of October that it's uh, closer to where we are here. And um, the, the volcano then will travel over the boat and um, as it moves through the waters, It's going to be, um, in my opinion, speaking about the travels of Earth, about the ways in which the planet flows, in which the continents are themselves on the move, about how Earth is constantly migrating. Maybe it's migrating at a pace that is invisible for humans to perceive. It's difficult for us to perceive things that are outside our own temporality of about 100 years, if we're lucky. To live that long, and so it's. But the Earth is on the on the move, and it's flowing, and um, the 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 movement of this volcano over the Hudson is also, um, you know, a, a way to think of other understandings of the Earth that are closer to ancient indigenous communities, both in Central America and here, and their understanding of what it means to be close to a river, and the migration. Of animals, earth, plants, um, a river is the conduit to that migration and um, it also to be here in this place where um, two rivers are joined it's I think very important because um, that place is a sacred place. Um, the, the waters of rivers to the ancient indigenous communities of Central America are the places where the souls of ancestors live. And um, so for me to bring this volcano to travel symbolically over the Hudson is a way to um, engage with ancient um, communities as well as contemporary ones and to cross time and to cross space um, in that motion.
11: So at the end of October, as you mentioned, there will be a reception here at the sanctuary where we then as a group walk to the lock. Hopefully we have access to the lock to visit the sculpture as it comes. And then it goes to MPAC and you are a part of an exhibition with so many other exceptional artists. Um, What are you looking forward to And, and what kind of communication do you hope that your work has with these other artists at MPAC?
6: Yeah, the exhibition is called Shifting Center, and in in this exhibition that is, um, you know, looking at sound installations that are shifting our perception of the world, um, I think that there will be different conversations that will be um, uh, enabled by the exhibition. And um, I'm very excited about that to be part of this exhibition and entering conversation—not me, but the works. Because for me, as you were saying, the movement of the volcano over the Hudson is a way for an object to perform. Uh, it's a performance of an object. It's the recognition that objects have wills, that objects have souls, that objects have the ability to perform. And um, the same in the in the space in the concert hall. Um, the volcano will be installed inside the concert hall. And um, then in that space, as opposed to uh, it being outdoors at Storm King, we will learn more about its resonance. We have never seen a volcano made of steel inside a concert hall. And having it there will teach us a lot about its resonance, about the sound of silence when material like metal that has been extracted from the earth is turned into organic and returned to the earth. Um, what kind of resonance does it contain and what kinds of memories does it hold, etc. So we're going to be able to experience that and the conversations with all the other amazing artists that are also thinking um, along the, the lines of um, crossing time and space with sound.
11: Beatriz Cortez, it's a pleasure to have you at Mohawk Magazine. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with?
6: Yes, I want to say that it has been really inspiring to visit the sanctuary for independent media and all the projects that you all have here, Um, Freedom Square, to see, um, you know, access to electricity, to public space, to a little library, to an echo trail, to a lab that tests water. To all these things uh, makes me think how important um, it is to work collectively across generations and open spaces for others and it's very inspiring and um, I work collectively with a group of other artists, with communities, um, with immigrant communities and uh, we try to embed into the work um, our own uh, cultural memory of how to build things and uh, in that sense to bring into our communities our ancestors or to cross time and space and to have time machines that allow us to bring into our communities our ancestors and there's something so beautiful and I'm really moved and I'm overwhelmed and I am so happy to be here and I just want to say thank you. Thank
11: you. We're so excited to be working with you and uh, to meet you on this campus and to receive Ilopango, the volcano that left. Thank you. Thank you.
6: See you soon in October, October 27 and 29.
11: The sculpture,
0: that sculpture will be installed at MPAC as part of Shifting Center. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Lavender.
4: Go. Yes. And, and well, I'll just chime in. And I'm H. Bosch Jr., our engineer is El Capitone, Kaylin McPherson. <laughs> yep. And I like to thank uh, all of our, our engineer or our team of contributors, uh, Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, and everybody else on team um, that have made these contributions. So that is our show. Until next time, I'll end by saying dance like there's no one watching, sing like there's no one listening, love like you've never been hurt, and last but not least, you better live like it's heaven on earth. This is the show. I am the host, H. Bosch Jr. Until next time, thank you for tuning in.